0: hi this is joe kramer and you're listening to the sirens of audio
1: please leave a review for us on apple podcasts and please like share subscribe and comment on our youtube videos then you shall be like us Files. This is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores Doctor Who on audio. I'm Dwayne.
2: And I'm Philip. G'day, Dwayne. G'day, audiophiles.
1: G'day, Philip. We've got a good one lined up today, haven't we?
2: Oh, All of ours are good, Dwayne, but yeah, this one's a special oh, no, I one. I know, I
1: keep saying that every time. We, we should just uh, take it for granted that they're all good, but uh, it's good to announce it too. Yes, <laughs> this, is,
2: this is a special one. It
1: is a very special one. We're going to be speaking with none other than Nicola Bryant this evening, and... Uh, and it's an era that's uh, very special to me, the era that uh, that she appeared in. So it's going to be lovely to speak with her later on, Philip.
2: Yes, very much looking forward to
1: it. Yeah, and I've been listening to a couple of audios featuring her today. So, I'll, in fact, one of them I'm going to recommend later on. So um, I guess you've been listening to a couple of uh, Perry audios as well in I preparation for this. I have as well,
2: but I regularly listen to them anyway. Because yeah. yeah. I'm particularly Perry and... Oh, I have forgotten already.
1: The Piston paradox.
2: Yes. Um, yeah, the companion No, I was actually thinking that the other companion, Araman, Araman, Araman. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think yeah, those two together. I just love all their stories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great dynamic. It really Very is. interesting when they when they throw extra companions in with the uh, companions that we only saw on their own on television. So That's right. we, get a, we get a fantastic new dynamic. But before we get to our chat with Nicola, do you know what, Philip? No, what, It's time to jump down that rabbit hole. Let's go.
3: <laughs>
1: now, Philip, today, I know this is probably going to be pointless to tell you, but yesterday, I received my copy of the season 22 Blu-ray because it's recently been released in Australia. I think this week at the time of recording, may have been out a month or two by the time this goes out. But I only just got it.
2: So what's what's (laughs) Blu-ray?
1: Yeah, nice one. Nice one, Philip. Nice one. And uh, season 22, as I said, is very special to me because this... Was broadcast in the UK in well early nineteen eighty five. Attack of the Cybermen started, so Doctor Who back in those days was hitting Australian television about twelve months after, wasn't it? About
2: this, yeah. Yeah,
1: so it would have been nineteen eighty six when I saw this. So, where was I? Second year in high school, uh, saving up my. Uh, at the actually when when season twenty two hit Australian television, I was still taping them with my. Audio cassettes, you know, putting a tape recorder next to the next to the TV and recording them. So, I, I had particularly copies of *Vengeance on Varos* and *Revelation of the Daleks* from that season. But I caught all the most of the other stories uh, on TV on transmission. So it's probably the f- one of the first seasons that I caught most of it on transmission. Uh, so it's very sentimental to me. And because Revelation of the Daleks has always been my one of my very favourite classic serials, and it's probably the the serial that got me fully entrenched into Doctor Who fandom. I had a little computer, uh, so I was teaching myself BASIC, and I did myself a basic, uh, BASIC computer language Dalek on my little PC that I had at the time. So, yeah, very influential on me, that story. It's funny, though, because I'm not a huge Dalek fan, but I think it was Davros and Terry Malloy's portrayal of Davros in that that really uh, stuck out to me. And there were some pretty shocking moments in that season too. So overall, season 22 is extremely important to me personally in my Doctor Who fandom. Um, I I want to know, Philip, is there a particular era or season for you that was important or most important to you to kick you off in Doctor Who fandom?
2: Um, Well, I guess uh, I started watching... Um, during the era of constant repeats, and I first came in, it would have been Tom Baker's second series. Um, so I think it was actually I'm trying I I can't quite remember. I was in hospital. I'd had my appendix out, and the TV was showing in the kids' ward because there's just one TV for all the kids to watch in those days. No individual TVs to watch, um, and someone was, had put Doctor Who on. And it was either Planet of Evil or Pyramids of Mars, and um, and I, I remember just getting caught up and going home when there was a cliffhanger. And so needing to to rest up at home having had these, the surgery. And that's when I started watching it. And yeah, so from then on, I, th- I think the ones that really hit me particularly were the, the first um, Leela ones. So we, we quick, pretty quickly moved into Robots of Death and Tons of wen Chiang just wowed me like crazy. And they just really hit me in the face. And at the end of Tons of wen Chiang, it went back to... Spearhead from space. And we suddenly went back to John Pertwee, which I didn't quite understand what was going on. I'd assumed... I, I think about that, I'd probably bought my first target book, which was The Boe of Fear with Patrick Troughton. So I realised at that point that Doctors regenerated um, or looked different. And I'd assumed that Tom Baker became John Pertwee. And so for all watching all of John Pertwee, I was convinced that this was the next Doctor. And so then when John Pertwee regenerated at the end of Planet of the Spiders... Um I thought, oh no, another Doctor. And it hadn't clicked, because when he's lying there, Tom Baker's lying on the floor, you can't really recognise it's Tom Baker. So it wasn't actually until the next episode and Tom Baker gets up, I went, oh, okay. And then I had to try and put all my Time Lord lore together. So, and I was about 10 at the time, so it was all, all a bit complex. But th- those, as I said, those seasons just went over and over again. I think that the next time we got, um it kept going, and we then went into season, of the leaders full first four seasons whether it be um 15 15 is it, oh, no, the yeah 15 okay good no, I'll tr- believe you 16 is the um key time, the time, is it? yeah so 15 so then, then we went into 15 and then when it got to the end of 15 then we went back to john perton again <laughs> um and so that you're yeah, just doing that constant lap over and over again were they Being skipping,
1: still skipping all the master stories at that time? Yeah, it's
2: not, yeah, skipping. It, it went from Spearhead to Space straight to Day of the Daleks. Right. Basically, two entire years just skipped in one go, which was just bizarre. But that's what—that's really when what I fell in love like, with Patrick Troughton and the three Doctors. Right. And so, in '86, when they actually then went back and actually had two Patrick Troughton stories as the start of the loop, um, and we—we we, I organised for my parents to buy a video recorder. Before that started. And so in 86, we got our first VCR and recorded the two, the two Patrick Trader stories and then kept recording after that. And those tapes cost a fortune.
1: I think it was after, not long after Revelation, the Daleks screened in Australia, actually, that they showed those black and whites. Because I remember that the Mind Robber was the first one they showed in that set of two, wasn't it? It was the Mind Robber first and then the Crotons. That's right. And uh, the Mind Robber absolutely blew me away, particularly that cliffhanger with the Tardis exploding. At I end know
2: of... that first episode. It's just, as a kid, I still adored it. Yeah, just adored
1: it. Yeah, I did too. And those white robots—they took me. They grabbed my imagination straight away. So interesting going from season twenty-two into those two stories. Yes, Oh they were—they were really weird with the <laughs> with the screenings back then, weren't they?
2: They were, but but that stage they were now showing the Masters but in black and white.
1: Yes. That's right. And but not, seasons, the, not the
2: first episode of the Invasion of the Dinosaurs. It started with a, 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 yeah, episode it was, two. Episode two. It took and me and years it, before I got to see the first episode of Invasion of the Dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, same here. But they they were also showing black and white season seven as well. So that's right. That was pretty cool. To it was uh, brilliant to see, um, and yes, certainly some of the season seven I was recording off the television as well. So I had episodes of the Silurians that I would that I would play over and over that I can still almost say word for word. So yeah, it was a very special time, that mid eighties period. Sounds like it was for the both of us.
2: It was, yeah. The TV show, buying the Target books, um, attending some fan stuff. I mean, I, I you know, I went to, I saw Tom Baker live signing books when I was 10 or 11. Um, I knitted myself a Tom Baker scarf, which I still have full of um, really bad hitting holes and things. (laughs) Um, And then Peter Davison and his wife came out to to Australia, Janet Fielding. I've got a picture of me with Janet Fielding when I'm about 13 or 14. Nice. Um, So I think that's probably my first picture with someone. So I didn't get pictures with either Tom Baker or Peter Davison, but I've got pictures of Janet Fielding.
1: Cool. Very good. Well, I just wanted to, and of course that period, Uh, was Perry as well which is very relevant to this episode and I was actually thinking about it did you know that with Tegan being Australian and Perry being an American character there were there was a gap between Sarah Jane Smith and Mel where there were no English companions no British companions at all they were either aliens or other nationalities so it's a long period without a british companion or yeah well leela was human but uh, a few human from the future so um very interesting never really thought about that before well there you go (laughs) all right with that random thought let's climb out of the rabbit hole shall we throw in a trailer for perry and the piscom paradox
2: yeah we're going to talk about soon
1: let's do that and we'll come back in a moment with nicola bryant coming soon from big finish productions Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, Perry
0: and the Piscon Paradox
3: Hi, I'm Perry. Hi. I'm Dr. Gilliam Brown. I'm a first-year botany student at Cal State. I'm forty-several years old. I travel with my friend, the Doctor. And I'm currently resting between my third and fourth marriage. And my 91st and 92nd diet. But here's the twist. We left the TARDIS. The doctor was holding a small black device like a TV remote, pointing at Santa Monica Bay, and the device chirped. Alien technology. That must be him. Come on, Perry. The game's afoot. Something walked over my grave. I turned and saw a woman looking at me from across the street. But I'm sure my mind is playing tricks. The girl I see looks far too young to be me. My God! What was I wearing? I can't help myself. I just have to meet her.
4: I am Major Zorn of the Piscot Law Enforcement Squad. Where is Zal?
3: I rushed around the back of the deli counter and ran out. I ran, wobbling in my unsuitable shoes. My God, I thought. I'm being hunted down by fish. How heroic. How stupid. Something happened
4: here, Perry. Something that gave you two futures.
0: Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.
2: Although the Doctor has had many companions over the years, few as integral to the era as Perry is to the Sixth Doctor. And when you think of the Sixth Doctor, you can't help but think of Nicola Bryant. Nicola, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, thank you for asking me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time.
2: <laughs> yeah, it has taken a while, but I'm so glad we finally got you.
3: Brilliant! It's look,
2: well, it's looking like you're in glorious weather over there. Sun seems to be
3: shining. Um, no, it's com- it's photographer's dream. Complete cloud cover. Right. So it, it's just like a reflector board to my side, but um, sort of. Oh, I feel the cold terribly. Don't love. I've got a fire on right next to me.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. It is still kind of summer, isn't it?
3: I know. I know. But um, there is a fire glowing next to me, um, and, and we're all very aware of you know the the heating situation. So we had a massive redwood uh, that had to be taken down last beginning of this year uh because it had died climate stress so we have a great deal of firewood to keep ourselves warm this winter good. i thought legs. we could afford to start early <laughs> <laughs>
2: well so whereabouts where do you live
3: i live in surrey which is a beautiful county which is what they call the home counties and the home counties are all the areas all around london and so I am the county that is directly below London.
2: Yes, it's a be- be- beautiful part of the world there.
3: We can, I can get to London in 30, 35 minutes. So that's easy by train. Yeah, just expensive. Yes, yes. Uh, very expensive. There's no two ways about it. It's expensive to buy. It's expensive to stay. It's expensive to do anything. But then, uh, you know. You you burn your own logs and you grow your own food. (laughs) (laughs) So where did you you grow up? In in this area. Um, This is where I grew up. Um, And I had no intentions of ever coming back to this area ever again. I thought it was beautiful, but it wasn't for me. I'd moved to London. Um, I loved how I loved my life in, in London. And I probably never would have left If it wasn't for possibly two things, one was, I love the countryside. And the other was I met Nev. (laughs) So I blame him. Um, And we were looking to move out of London. And then my mum got into quite a bit of trouble, which is a very long, boring story. But basically we came to live very close to her, to take care of her physically, emotionally, and financially, really. Um, that's how I ended up back in the area I grew up in.
2: Well, it's nice
3: to come back to your roots. Well, I didn't like it at all at first, never loved it. I was like, oh, it's not multicultural enough. And, and, and it's so quiet. And, um, and I was just missing the fact I could see all my friends in fringe shows and things like that in town, just see them so easily. And I was missing the cutoff. Whereas of course the writer's job is to be a recluse, really. Yep. So never was just fine. So for the first couple of years, I think I found the transition quite difficult, but um, I love every bit of it now because we sort of made everything that we're doing to suit our own lives now. And um, I have to say during lockdown, I was really, really glad that we were in the countryside and it just meant I could still take the dogs for long walks um, without meeting people without worrying that I was going to bump into someone and we'd have, pick your walk, but it was nice to be able to have that uh, space. Whereas if I'd stayed in London, that would have been much more difficult to handle, I think.
2: Did, did you have dogs in London too?
3: No, no, because um, I had a a first floor apartment. I could have had probably a dog, but uh, no, I had, a, I had an apartment with a garden, um, but... I just never felt there was the space. I never felt there was the time, to be honest. And it was Nev who knew I so wanted dogs and I'd missed dogs. And I said, oh, but how do we do that with our schedules and this? And he said, oh, we'll just make it work. And you do. And I can't believe I went so long without having a dog again.
2: <laughs> Following you on Twitter, dogs are a real passion of yours. and, and the they prote- are. And the protection of, uh, protection of animals in general, but also dogs. So Yeah. Why the love of so much of animals?
3: I don't know. I've always had it. Yesterday I had to rescue a robin. So I had a robin, little robin, in my hands. Oh, that the feeling of that. Um, I felt it was like little Marnie who I rescued. It felt like she weighed one ounce, you know, and you've got this little heart beating and, and it's just you know, really we're all a part of nature, however much we might want to deny it. We are all dependent upon each other. And I, I suppose my, 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 my passions, my charities, are those, you know, for, for those who cannot help themselves and that's what charity is all about anyway. But particularly, you know, animals and children who, who don't have the ability to defend themselves in the way that us adults can or, or, or attempt to um i as a child would go around rescuing animals in the garden in my parents garden um because my father built a conservatory and all the birds just kept flying into it so it was a disaster and i would just go out on patrol and collect these birds that had concussed themselves you know particularly if it was in the snow and i'd bring them in and i'd rescue them and and i rescued dozens and dozens of birds that were saved by the fact that i went out and collected them and we only lost one and it had to have a full burial you know <laughs> but i just um there's a wonderful i don't know whether you get his show super vet you heard of super vet no he has a huge show in 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 uh, great britain and uh he lives not far away um from us here in surrey his practice is here And he takes animals that everyone have gone, there's nothing you can do about this animal. And he saves them, does incredible surgeries, uh, rescues them. And he's been a pioneer in animal surgery. And also in the fact that animal surgery and human surgery should be related because we can learn so much from each other. Some of the techniques he's used for limbs for dogs are now being used for limbs for humans. So... um, he said that when you rescue an animal, you rescue yourself. And I thought, gosh, what a, what a clever phrase really, because it is that opening of your own heart and that giving um, that patience, that understanding with a, an animal that's traumatized, that just, it lifts your own soul. You just feel like you've done something good for the day. Um, You've just tiny little contribution to this planet, but it feels like such an incredibly important thing to do. To be caring, for caring for the old woman who lives up the road, who doesn't have anyone who visits, caring for that the gentleman you nod to who's always buying his newspaper, whose name you don't know, but you know that that nod is important to him. Just that caring awareness of everything. Um, I definitely feel my animals and my plants are my saving grace in every sense. One
1: <laughs> well, one thing I love about uh, animals is watching my son. He has autism and I love him. He has such a connection with animals. He sort of stops and you can see that tangible connection between them. It's really good for his uh, emotional regulation, calms him right down. And uh, we, we don't have any pets because we travel a lot, but sometimes I think, oh boy, it would be nice to have an animal that yeah. he could just connect with a lot because it's they're they're so good for him and his uh, emotional regulation. It's amazing to watch, actually.
3: That it's very true. I've read a lot about that that connection, particularly between autistic children and, and animals, and it's uh, it is as you say very palpable. You can mm. you can see that. So where do you do you travel all over Australia or all over the world?
1: Uh, the last couple of years uh, we've been uh, we've bought a caravan and we travel uh, all over mainland Australia. So. Uh, wow which, Yeah we're, we're due to go away again soon But um, uh, the pandemic obviously put some of our plans on hold And we were actually on the road at the time So we were And because Australia <laughs> closed all their state borders We were kind of stuck in certain places during that time So it was interesting But now everything's calming down uh, We can sort of get back out again
3: <laughs> Well, you can take a small dog with you You can get a yeah, small one I was going
2: to say it's, there's some, some animals love travelling
1: mm, True They
3: do, yes Find it of. <laughs> travel happy one. <laughs> but the no, thing is,
1: with in Australia, there's animals wherever you go. So wherever we stop, the, the kangaroos and wallabies always come up to us. And, you know, even in certain parts, there's emus as well. And
2: and half of them want to kill you, as um <laughs> all my English friends yeah. say. You
1: stay away from the snakes, but the wallabies and kangaroos are fine.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so as well as having a passion for animals when you were young, I believe you also had a passion for dance and ballet.
3: Yeah, I think dance, music, ballet, just, just dancing, enjoying life in a weird way. Um, I wanted to be a ballerina. Um, and my parents used to dance, as in two people who'd never learned to dance, but that generation always went to dances. And so there was often a lot of music in the house and my, my parents dancing together. My father was incredibly romantic, you know, for a, a businessman, entrepreneur. He was very romantic Um, and so he would always be putting the music on and uh, and playing music on a piano, self-taught to my mum. So they had their favorite pieces and, and so that sort of that, that connection to the joy of life really, I think, uh, was what dance was for me and expression because my mum was deaf. So ballet was a way of sort of expressing acting but without the words.
2: Yeah. I was watching you recently actually in an episode and just having learnt that you were a dancer, I could actually see how you move because dancers move and walk in a particular way and you just have a, a lifeness to you, which I thought, oh, well, yeah. So, how many years did you dance for and, and why did you stop?
3: Uh, I started when I was about four, um, and I stopped when I wasn't allowed to go to ballet school, pretty much. So I'd wanted to go to um, ballet school when I was, because I was sort of a year ahead in school, so I was 11. So I'd done all the auditions for going to what would have been senior school, middle school, um, to go to ballet school at that time. And my dad had slightly mistakenly thought, oh, just let her audition. She won't get in. (laughs) This is just a dancing thing. All girls want to dance or ride ponies or something and and just let her do it. And and then she won't and it'll fall by the wayside and we'll just get on with her proper education. But of course I got into them all. So then that created a bit of an issue. And my dad very clearly did not want me to go to ballet school because I was academically bright and all the school was saying oh that would be a terrible waste of a good brain because they weren't thinking about being an artist or creative or anything and so I didn't get to go and then it was like well what's the point in dance I was heartbroken I think I was a pretty depressed young girl and um, because I wasn't doing it I just had lost the joy because all my childhood, I thought I was going to be a ballerina. And if I wasn't going to go to ballet school, then I wasn't going to be able to be a ballerina. So I just stopped. Um, My mum tried to get me to take up tap and jazz dance. And I was like, yeah, okay, but it's not ballet. Um, So I just really wasn't interested. And then finally, my mum got me to audition for some amateur dramatics where they were doing fiddler on the roof and she said well they need people who can sing and dance and and you know they need all the children and i was like Whoa. and my mom was you know do you think you can act and i was like well yes of course i can act yeah and i said but this says you know you have to be 18 to join the company and i'm 13 so how can i join she said well act So that's really when my sort of interest in acting began out of the ballet. So I went to audition for one of the children in Fiddler on the Roof. And I ended up playing the second youngest daughter, not the youngest. (laughs) And the woman, the woman who was 21, who was shorter than me, but she was 21, she was playing the youngest daughter. And there I was, probably about 14 by the time the production happened, playing the second youngest daughter. And that's when I got the bug for acting, because I just loved every second of it. And considering I only had like five lines, I just loved. I felt like I was in the whole show because I was with the family all through that story and their journey and i was living every second of the journey crying my eyes out peeling potatoes being terrified of the russians i was living it completely and and i thought oh i love this i love this this is like this is like being a prima ballerina because even though you may not have the spotlight on me i am living eating breathing this production completely i was immersed and That's kind of, then it became a pact between me and my dad that when I finished my education, I would be allowed to go to drama school. And probably, I don't know, without my mum saying, go on then, go off and do that dancing, acting. (laughs) In this hour of dramatics, maybe I wouldn't become an actor. I don't know. But certainly that's where I first sort of got the bug for it.
2: So at what point did your father realized the talent you had and appreciate that you know there's creators in the world to be appreciated?
3: I think he was quite a long time before, he even, even with drama schools. It's So I auditioned for all the main drama schools and because I was a year ahead in school, I sort of auditioned when I was 17. And sort of on principle, despite the auditions going well, they went, yes, but you're only 17. And, you know, we really don't like to take people that young because you haven't had a life, you know, was, was the response I got back. Not that they said it to my face then, they weren't honest enough to say that. They just sort of, they just said, thank you. And then I got this letter back from all of them saying the same thing. We love you very much, come back in a couple of years, in a few years time, um, when you've experienced some life. Oh, I was like, oh. you know, even the waiting of a year just seemed, so long! How could I possibly do that? Um, so I went back three months later with a different look and another name,
2: and <laughs> a different age as well.
3: I, uh, um, I had, I had aged three months. I think so. My birthday had moved. So I think I, I think I tweaked it. I think the whole, you know, most of the form was a bit of a. A dodgy, um, a dodgy form. (laughs) And uh, so I went back. None of them seemed to recognize me from before. And so this would have been not for the September intake, the beginning of the year, but for the the following year's intake. Not the following September, but the following February or April, whichever ones they did, because a lot of the schools did two intakes a year. And I went back and I'd sort of got a feel for each of the schools. So I did very different auditions for each one. So for Central, I tied my hair in lots of little plaits the night before, wore loads of dark black eye makeup, really big, you know, coal eyeliner and frizzed my hair out to here. Like I had some mad perm and and I wore slashed jeans and I talked like that. I went into the audition and that was my voice. And so then when I did my Shakespeare, they thought, blimey, what a good voice she's got. She can do RP. But I did my own audition like this because I like them, sort of the earth, tough. People who go out and fight. So I was like really tough in my audition. And I I kicked the chair into the middle of the room. And I went, for those who can't beat, see, that's the beat chair is gonna be the log in this scene, right? That's my tree. Right. Are you ready? <laughs> I was like, okay, we're like What's the <laughs> and then I did my very best Shakespearean voice. And they were, wow. You know, cause they like them rough. So that was my central school. And then Wemba Douglas, where I chose to go in the end were very classical orientated. So even my modern piece, I chose a very classical piece. I wore my full length practice skirt for all of my pieces. And, and I was very polite and this and that. And they looked at my thing and they said, hmm, um, you are very young. And I was still young because they like to take them 20, 19, 21, after university or whatever. And I was like, and they said, you know, gee, you've not really had much life experience. And I said, oh, please, don't judge me by the number of birthdays I've had, but by the events that have occurred between them. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from, but. So they were like, oh, have you had an eventful life? I said so many things I just can't talk about, really. you know." And, and so they, they had this great sense that I had been through drama already in my life. Um, and so I just re- replayed them all. And I got into every single drama school three months later. And then I had to try and, so I had to sign up under a different name. And then I had a, a scholarship, which I got from the local thing, which was, of course, was in my real name. I was like, well, how do I tie my scholarship? To? It was a bit complicated, but we sorted it in the end. And there was one audition guy who realized what I was doing. in in the sense he didn't realize it was the same person from before, but he was on the the panel, the board for both Weber Douglas and Central. And I'm so short-sighted. It was only when I went to sit down and have the chat after I'd done some stuff and I'd done my pieces and they said, oh, do come and sit down. And now you're sitting either side of the table. And I could see he was on the table and I thought, "Oh, oh no, what if he recognizes me? from last week's audition in, in um, Weber Douglas, because I was sort of posh and classical there. And when I went to Weber Douglas, I, I saw him. I, I was never taught by him, but I saw him. He was in the, the local pub and I went up to him and I said, thank you for not blowing my cover. And he went, oh, thank you. It was the most interesting ha- thing that happened in a very dull day. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose they've got to listen to you know 500 people doing the same speech and he said no I realized that you were the same person and I thought if she can do that and do this this is somebody we should have in our school so I said no, but I didn't say anything to them I just gave you the vote you know
2: so so you faked your age to get your first job in Field on the Roof, you faked your personality to get into drama school, and then you faked yeah. your nationality to get your first job on I, Doctor Who.
3: Say, acting is all about faking anyway. <laughs> it's about faking it convincingly, you know. So Con- so convincingly you think it's not a fake, it's completely authentic.
2: So for, for the Doctor Who role, did, did John Nathan Turner know you weren't
3: American or did you actually just become American for that role? He thought I was American because they were only auditioning Americans and Canadians. So um, my agent, who wasn't my agent at the time, had seen me in drama school playing an American part in No No Nanette and had then rung me two weeks after I left drama school saying, I want to put you up for this role in Doctor Who. And after a sort of mistaken identity phone call, because I thought it was a friend playing a prank. I mean, who rings you up after you've left drama school to say, I want to put you up for a a companion in Doctor Who? That doesn't happen. So I thought it was a joke. But once I realized he was a real person, (laughs) (laughs) we had this conversation. I said, look, but I'm not American. He said, well, I thought you were. and I didn't think anybody else was in that production. So... Can you, would you want to, would you be willing to go to an audition and just pretend to be American through the audition? And I went, sure, if you think I'm right for it, you know, then yeah, let's, let's go for it. And on the understanding that once, if I got the part, which was this million to one shot anyway, but if I got it, that it would then be explained to the producer, the director, or whoever was involved, because I knew very little about who was involved, that it would explain to them that I was in fact English and that would be fine. So I went in doing my American um, and under the expectation that this would all be revealed, but then it never was. I think my agent got cold Feet because I said, once I got it, I said, so when are we gonna tell them? He said, well, not just yet. Let's get the contract, which, you know, you understand. I understand that. Sign that. That makes sense. And then I found out I was going on breakfast TV. And I went, I can't go on breakfast TV. All my aunts and uncles will be watching. They'll (laughs) probably ring in and complain. Friends will ring in. I can't just go on breakfast TV and pretend to be American. And he went, well, hopefully the contract will come before then. But I don't know. Maybe it had or it hadn't. I don't know. But then I had to go on to breakfast TV. And I thought, well, I'm just going to. Mm, dumb it down a bit. I'm going to, you know, dull it out to make it sound not like a very strong accent. I'd been much stronger in the audition. And, um, but I had to do it. And I was terrified. I wasn't just terrified of being on the show. I was terrified somebody was going to ring up and say, she's not American. What's going on? This is just, like, nonsense. So, and I've no idea why nobody did, um, So yeah, and then it was like, well, are you gonna tell him before we start rehearsals? Because it was then quite a long gap before we actually started um, the job. And and there was like three months between me getting it and me doing breakfast TV. So it hadn't been told then. I was like, when are you going to tell them? And he said, well, I think it's best we do the the first story. And I was like, okay. So, I just had to be in rehearsals everywhere, all the time, using an American accent. And then eventually, you know, we'd, I'd done the first three stories and we had the break. And I went to see my agent and I said, Are we ever going to tell him? He said, Well, it's a bit awkward too now, isn't it? And <laughs> well, I was kind of left with a, Well, I guess it is. Yes. Right. Thank you. <laughs> So it did. It felt very, very awkward because I I felt like it was it was okay and it was fun doing it in the audition, but doing it for the rest of the time was a real strain. And then I felt like I was lying to people, and and that felt really odd. Um, and I would just try and avoid it all the time when people would ask you questions because also. John Nathan Turner had knew that I was married, but he didn't want me to say to the world that I was married. So I was, you know, pretending to be American and single while I was, in fact, you know, British and, and married. Um I just felt I was more acting off screen than on, really.
2: <laughs> I mean I guess the fact you were already lying for John Nathan Turner, did that make you feel a bit better about the fact that you were lying to him as well? <laughs> I suppose.
3: I suppose. I, do, I don't, you know, the thing is, I don't want to feel like it's lying because I never, I never said, I'm American. Just embodied the character. I went in with an American accent and my agent's the one who said, I have an American actress. I never went in and said, I am American. But of course, you don't need to because the person has arrived and and they're speaking with American accents, So... I didn't have to say that but it just felt weird and by the time it got to do breakfast tv where people are interviewing you and saying so where are you from and i'm like oh this is this is just horrible that was that was when it was like okay you know it's bad enough trying to not look nervous when you're doing an interview (laughs) let alone not look nervous because you're not actually yourself
2: (laughs) so who who worked out first who found out first
3: Well, the first person who was told was Colin Baker and I told him Um, and that's because Colin and his wife Marion had invited me uh, and my husband Scott to dinner and Scott was American. He had been a Broadway's musical star and I'd said, oh, I can't go and lie to my friends. I can't go into their house. And do this, this just feels awful. And so he said, well, don't, you know, we'll just take them into our confidence. And so when we got to the door, um, you know, we knocked on the door of their house and we answered the door and I said, hello, in a British accent. And he went, oh, you don't have to put on a British accent to come in. I said, no, <laughs> this is my real point. And then, you know, we sat down and we chatted and, and I explained how. Yes, you know, obviously my husband's American, but I'm not. And, um, uh, and told them the whole story, which they thought was brilliant and wonderful. And Colin was like, I won't say a word. It's my secret. Yep, yeah, it's fine. And so he knew for the following, uh, you know, the rest of the, the filming. It was only after he left and he was then doing an interview with the press. And he said, can I mention it in the press? um and I think I'd left by that point too and I said yeah sure but it just kind of got like it was kind of a at the end of his interview a bit to John Nathan Turner I felt in a way it was like and Nicola's English anyway no no (laughs) no (laughs) no it was all you know to do with what had happened with the hiatus and why he'd left and why he wasn't doing regeneration and and so it kind of Everyone sort of ignored what was said because it just didn't seem very particularly relevant. But that's when it was announced. And I presume that John Nathan Turner read that and saw that. We never had a conversation about it. He never asked me. He never went, you know, were you lying to me? Were you, were you hiding this? Were you? Maybe he thought it was quite funny. He never said it's a strange one i'm surprised there wasn't a point where he one day went but he didn't so, so you saw you saw
2: john many times after that but he never reached yeah. ever
3: no never said it
1: <laughs> okay. well you you you've had me fooled, nicola because i saw you a, a little bit after doctor who i think in australia at that time you're in uh, black adder and yes. uh what was what was what was your uh, brief in that role? Was it to make the most uh, make people cringe with that laugh that you had? But uh, yes. I, remember, <laughs> I remember thinking that oh boy, she's doing a, a really good uh, English accent there.
3: <laughs> exactly, that was what a lot of people thought, um, and it, it was that thing where what I would have been obvious casting for, you know, people from Surrey, um, Jilly Cooper novels that were being made at the time, I couldn't get an audition because they were like, no, 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 she's American. And my agent would say, no, actually, she's, English. no, no, we've seen her, we know she's American. So it was a really bizarre thing. I mean, my first West End job, I was playing American. Everything I was doing was American. So I kind of got stuck in that little niche for a while.
2: Yeah. Now you've had a huge voiceover career um, and you've demonstrated already <laughs> The range of voices you have. Um, how, how many voices and accents do you do? Do you, do you have you ever worked out? No,
3: because there's always a new one to learn as well. Um, in the sense that someone will come up with something obscure that you've not done before, and then you go right. Okay, well, I better learn that one then. Um, I played a Greenham Common girl, which is um, was all about the sort of Falklands War era, and I had to be from a particular part of Leicester. And I thought, well, i played Leicester Theatre and all that, but, and I used to have this wonderful woman who did any voices I wanted to study. She would um, work with me to, to, to get them. And so when you've got somebody like that, that you know you can go to, you're not intimidated by any accents. And I've got that musical ear, so I hear it all as music anyway. So I would go to her and say, right now, I've got to do this. I've got to do um, Birmingham, I've got to do New Zealand, I've got to do whatever. And then you just get a phrase. And then once you've got that phrase, you're just in that sort of groove, really. Um, So I've never really counted, but um,
2: quite a few. (laughs) So for about 80 stories now, you've come back to be finished to put on your American. (laughs) So I can't believe it.
3: (laughs) I thought, when Nev put all these out for me, because i just got back from my appointment, and I was like, I said, oh, if you put more than one of each one out? He went, no, and that's not all of them either. And I was like, oh, I can't have done that. Of course I have
2: done loads. So how was your approach to come with work for Big Finish?
3: Oh, it's just a celebration working for Big Finish. It's just a joy. I get to play Perry continuously, um, and... I suppose, I mean, it is, I always describe it as a pair of comfy old slippers that you just pop on, and I don't have to worry about what does she sound like? What does she think? What's her process and what she been through? Because, because I know Perry. And uh, so the only thought I've ever had to really do was when I was doing um, Piscon Paradox and doing the older and the younger Perry thinking about, well, how dynamically do I want to make that difference? Um, And uh, and now we have quite a few stories with the older Perry. Yes. So I do still, when I'm playing predominantly the younger Perry, raise my vocal level up slightly higher than I am, and slightly lighter, so that it has more youth to it, and then take it even lower when I'm playing the much older Perry. and and really that's it, um, uh, in terms of preparation and work for for doing it. I mean, my approach with big finish is like, hurrah! What's the story? Who am I with? <laughs> that's, that's literally it. Now,
2: now after you, after you left Doctor Who, you came back and played similar characters with Collins. So you still did a bit of work with Colin, with the Miss Brown mm-hmm. audio visuals. Um, you did a you did an audio story during the hiatus. Um, Slip yeah. back. Um, yes. Was that, was that, had you done much audio work before that? Was that one of your first audio stories you'd done?
3: That was, yeah, that was my first professional audio. Um, in drama school, we'd done some audio work and predominantly it was stage work. We'd done nothing for television. So <laughs> the thing you end up doing. Um, I'd got my only television experience had been holding the boom in the summer holidays while the year above me, we're doing a television project. So they got to do a television project and we didn't get a television project. So I kind of got to hang out and work with them on the sort of technical side, but I didn't get to do any sort of in front of camera work at all. So I'd done some audio. We'd done some radio plays uh, in drama school. So I had a little uh, knowledge, but but very little. Um, I'd not really done any audio work before. so. It was great fun to go in and do that and and see everyone, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it. It would have
1: been a different process um, recording for that radio player as opposed to Big Finish. They have the booths and things like that. So, would you have all been standing around the the, the microphone or have a couple in the all in the one room?
3: Yes, there was sort of. I think there was like three mics, and you'd have sort of two people per mic, and there's all that turning away to turn your page and then coming back and all that quiet stuff you do and then stepping back and forwards for for voices as well. So you are doing a lot more than um, everything is done for you in Big Finish. You don't even have to fade your voice as you go down a corridor. They they want you to keep everything even and they will do the corridor and the the feet sounds and all of this is uh, put on afterwards. You do still need to shout and scream um, occasionally (laughs) Um, And obviously, you know, you do your out of breath acting and all of that, but it's a very, it was a very different setup. Um, And I just, I just learned by watching, really. It was just a case of looking at um, uh, everyone and uh, going, oh, I see. So they step back and they they do their script that way. You know, nobody said, have you ever done any of this before? Shall we give you some techniques? No one did it, you just watch, learn, copy. Um, But yes, a completely
0: different setup from Big Finish. Doctor Who The Church and the Crown.
3: Is this really another time?
0: Yes, and place, Paris, 1626 to be exact, good few centuries after your time.
4: For the Church and the Crown!
0: (laughs) Richelieu had a vision for uniting the cultural diversity.
3: Richelieu? Wasn't he the bad guy?
0: No, 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 no. Quite the opposite. Alexander Dumas has a lot to answer for. Run me through Delmar, and 50 will step forward to take my place. 50 of the Cardinal's Guards to
4: one King's Musketeer. <laughs> Hardly a challenge, Morin.
0: How many more reports must I read of skirmishes on the streets? Twelve in the last week alone. What should I care if a few hotheads are getting carried away? Our men are tearing each other to shreds!
3: Such beauty. Are you talking to me? Could she have gone back to your TARDIS?
0: Oh, I doubt it. Sensible just isn't in Perry's vocabulary. I don't know. There she is. Take her.
3: Hey, get your hands off me. Why would anybody take Perry? Doctor! Doctor! Help!
0: Would it help if I said I have to gain an audience with the king on a matter of national security that may even threaten the life of Queen Anne? <laughs> then I'd say that you are more of a fool than you look. The king is preparing for the state ball this evening and we'll see no one, especially a peasant like you. My ball will bring together every French aristocrat in one room. Tonight, we shall see France unified in my name.
3: I am the Princess Eremem of Karnak. May I present the doctor, my royal vizier and chief advisor?
0: Dressed like that? I thought he was your jester. I work for a higher purpose, as well you know.
4: No, cardinal! You work for me! Do not forget
0: that. For the unity between the Church and the Crown to survive this night, the madness must stop.
4: Now, sir, prepare to face the sword of
0: Patrice Delmar. Ungar.
4: Oh. oh dear.
2: Now, was it was it Gary Russell who invited you to come and first work with Big Finish? Or was how did, how did the whole Big Finish thing come about? Did, did you trust did you trust it in terms of brand new company doing Doctor Who? How did you feel about the whole process?
3: Well, I, I knew Gary and 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 I met Jason and I and I sort of um, I I, did, I didn't have any doubts. I probably should have done. I'm I'm not a doubting person. <laughs> Honestly, I say this now and I'm thinking about something that happened recently. I think I really should ask more questions. And but I just kind of like I'm always a yay sort of person. So I was um I was just up for it and, and our first studio. Had this sort of corrugated plastic roof. So every time it rained, not forgetting what country we're in, it was so noisy that you couldn't record. So we literally had to record when it wasn't raining. That was our very first studio, which was interesting. And because it was this plastic core, it was like a shed, really. We were on a glorified shed and on stilts. And because it was also this sort of plastic roof, um, it was like being in a sauna when the sun came out. So one particularly hot day, I remember, I remember us all joking. I said, I really need to be in my, you know, Planet of Fire outfit now, <laughs> because it was just so hot. It was just like sweat pouring off of us. <laughs> or you know? having to stop, because, oh, it's raining, stop. Oh. I'm taking a sort of two-hour coffee break. Oh, it stopped, right, quick, quick, here we go. (laughs) Um, So it was very primitive when we started. Um, But then I heard the first um, story come out, and I thought, wow, this is great. These guys have done a really great job. Um, And I thought, yes, I want to hear more, so I'm sure other people will feel the same way.
2: Very few actors get the privilege of working against two doctors and because you spanned from the fifth to the sixth doctor, it meant Big Finish had double the stories you could do with double the doctors. Yeah, What's what's it like in terms of um, process, in terms of how Colin works and Peter works?
3: They do have very different working techniques and I, I don't describe all of those details in case somebody wants to sue me. <laughs> but... Um, Let's just say uh, Colin is very thorough with his reading the script and knowing what's happening and asking questions and And if anything isn't quite the way he thinks it should be, he'll say and, and you know, he's really on board. And Peter's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it.
2: Is Peter very intuitive as he reads the script for the first That's time?
3: Very, very... Yes, let us say this. Let us say, let us say perhaps so intuitive it's nearly improvised. Um, yes, um, I mean he does a great job of just reading a script, but there is often this sense that he may not have read it prior to the recording, um, which I suppose depends on his schedule, etc. But uh, it's a different process for him, but it's always the same process for me. I'm just playing Perry, and um, and I know my process, and I know, um, I mean, I, I do less now than I used to. I used to read the whole script through, nothing. Then I'd read the script, script through and just think about Perry. Then I'd mark up all my bits on the script, and then depending upon how much time it was between when we did it and when I'd marked it up, I might read it again. Um now I don't need to do that process in the same way because it's, you know, so much is embedded. Um, but I wouldn't read it less than twice. <laughs> so yeah. that's sort of where, where I am. Yeah.
2: Now, now, early days for you, they added a second companion for Peter Davison with Caroline Morris and Ehrman. And the two of you had a particularly, I, I think there was some glorious, glorious stories that you had and the two, the two of you kind of took over the show, uh, in as much as there's even episodes where P doesn't even appear because we don't need him anymore. Yes. <laughs> what, what was it like in terms of ha- having that sort of relationship with a a, a second woman, another actress, and the, the journey that they were taking you on?
3: Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed having Araman and um, and and it was a, a wonderful excuse to sort of play Mini Doctor in a way, sort of Perry becomes like the mini doctor explaining everything to her, because she's from a different time, from a different period, from a, from a different culture. Um, and being the big sister to, to Eremon was a was a lovely way to, um, for Perry to evolve. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed all of those stories. Um, and there's, you know, I know I've, I've read somewhere that, um, that there's the big finish. Say, oh well, you know, there's only a limited amount that you can do in that period. But I always feel there's unlimited because it's Doctor Who, um, and I think Aramom added to that unlimited feel because we were able to go in a direction because we had Aramom. But I'm sure there's plenty more that we could still do in that era. But um, I haven't done a Peter one for ages, incredibly long time. But then I'm really glad that we also developed the. Much older Perry with Colin's Doctor, which has been a lovely development for me.
2: Yeah, has been. So, you did a couple of, um, there's a couple of times you started doing some directing. You did a yes. unit story. Um, what was it like getting on the other side of the mic?
3: Oh, I loved it. I really loved it. Um, I think, you know, as an actor, we all know that we always just want to give our very best performance. And because it's audio and I'm not worried about a set or any of these things. You know, I had to be involved in the music and stuff. And I I think they probably got a bit tired of how picky I was (laughs) and going, no, 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 can we do this? Can we change that? Can we do this? So I had very strong opinions about the music. Um, But I just really enjoyed nurturing my fellow actors and trying to get the very sort of best performance out of them. Um, I think it was my, second directing when I directed David Tennant and Nick Courtney. And Nick was going to give, he was sort of giving me a bit of a hard time in a cheeky way, in a fun, jovial way. And he went, oh, female directors. I'm not sure about them, really. You know, I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But we... um, there was a scene, and I think he was in that one too, where there was David Tennant and uh, an actress. whose name's gone from my head. I can probably find it somewhere. Um, and the level of um, fear. Was Siri O'Neill? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Siri. And I thought, I must be having, the, thinking the wrong name because now Siri means something else completely different, doesn't it? It so. does. Thought my brain had just missed there, So yes, and I wasn't really getting a level of fear and, you know, uh, in this scene that I wanted. So, um, I decided, because there was like sirens and alarms going off, they were on the plane and the plane was going to crash and everything was going to blow up. And it was really loud. But when they're recording it, of course, they've got none of those special effects. And we did two or three takes and it wasn't quite going right. And so I said, right, on the next take, having checked this with the engineer, I am going to make all of the noises. And I did, I made the sirens, the alarms, the voice saying, self-destruct, you know, and all this just sort of stuff, 10, nine, yeah, boom. I was making so much noise that it meant they had to act over the top of me. And I sort of, so it gave that level of tension. And uh, afterwards we had, we had what I was looking for in the scene. And um, both David, David Tennant came up to me and thanked me for doing that. And Nick caught me, put a little thing in his autobiography, apparently right at the end he he wrote he just worked with me and he wrote how he'd love to work with me again and and I thought wow that was so sweet but he said it's what you managed to do in that scene that made me go wow that was really great you had two choices you could either have you know humiliated someone saying they're no good or you could have just accepted it the way it was and gone oh well that scene's just not really going to work he said but you didn't you just brought the whole thing up? No, everybody walked off feeling wow, that was really great. We did, we did something brilliant there. Of course, the poor engineer who had me screaming and shouting in his ear <laughs> in the room was not so, but he said, No one's ever done that before. I'll have to remember that.
1: <laughs> was that recorded by any chance? Your sound effects is it somewhere in the big finish archive? I don't
3: think so because there wasn't a mic in. The uh, engineer's room. We don't. You don't tend to record that booth. So no. And I think it would obviously cause problems because you don't want that recording to be going on the disc. So, and you have to make sure that there's no bleed from the, the headphones onto the, the microphone. at the beginning,
4: weren't you? It's only fair you show up for the end.
0: Unit isn't ending. We go now live to Colonel Chaudhry of the UN's Intelligence Task Force, who's on the scene. How
4: the hell do I explain that our CO's missing? And just to make it more interesting, we've lost an alien spaceship.
1: ISIS won't go away either. Watch your back there.
0: Thanks for the assistance, Colonel... Dalton. You're replacing Colonel Brimacombe Wood. Lieutenant, pass the word among the lads that effective immediately, I'm the new CO. Pizza Hut. Uh, very funny, Hoffman. Technically, I think you will find That's boyish charm. Do you know what that's like, to lose everything? Mm. You, you need me. Yeah. Hold me right there or I'll shoot. You're going to shoot me anyway. Oh.
4: oh! Well!
0: It's been a real pleasure knowing you.
4: Colonel, I'm back in charge. Bloody family. So kindly move your asses.
2: What was it like meeting David Tennant? Because this is before he's taken these meteoric rise to fame, and he would have just adored you as a fan. Um, he did. So, what was, it, what was it like meeting him? I mean, was he all fanboy?
3: He was a bit. He was fanboy boy trying to control, he was fanboy, really. Um, But he, as he always is, a very warm and charming person and a a lovely actor, great to work with um, because he, you know, produces the goods. Um, He he knows his, uh, he knows the machine. He knows how to bring the best out of his own instrument. And he was, he was wonderful to work with and great fun. And we had a lovely time chatting um, in our lunch breaks.
2: So why haven't you done more directing?
3: Uh, Maybe they don't want me back after the (laughs) amount of time over the music. This could be true. Um, And I suppose this might sound like a really odd thing. It's a level of commitment to do that as an actor, I was always aware that I'm then committing to being available to do this for the next eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, that time. And as an actor, I was worried about making that commitment because then I would have to possibly miss acting work because I've committed to doing the directing. Whereas if I rang up Big Finish and I said, look, I'm sorry, I've got this job. I've really got to do this. I know that they'd let me pop into a studio on another day and lay down my tracks and they'd still have their product. But if I agreed to do the directing, you can't pull out and say, I'm sorry, I've got this job. Or at least you certainly couldn't in the days when I did it. Yeah. Because they didn't have so many other people to stand in. They had such a small pool. So I think that, that was a huge influence on my sort of deciding not to do more. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, and I spent way too long over everything. I know I did. Um, and everyone was kind of like, you know, you you can do this a bit faster. That you don't have to be responsible for this. I was like, no, no, no. So probably, um, I'm, I'm sure if I said I want to, they would they would find me some. I'm, but, sure, uh, I'm,
2: sure, I'm sure they would because I mean they're looking for more and more female directors all the time, and uh, you yeah, know people like Louise and Helen Goldwyn have been doing such a Jane Slavin have been doing amazing have, yeah. amazing jobs, and women bring a different. Feel and touch to audios, both in the writing and the directing, and we need more of them. So yeah, right. maybe, maybe, you maybe if life starts to be quieter for you. You should just tap
3: Nick yes, on the shoulder and say, maybe. Nick. I suppose the the thing is, I've got things I want to do, and it's that um, it's that difficult thing, isn't it? I've got this. I've got a calling to write certain things that I need to complete. And I have put them off and put them off and put them off. And I now feel that it's my duty to that piece of work, that that creativity to finish this thing before I take on something else, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it does. Feel that if I, if I, there's lots of other things I could be doing and I know that this is essentially unpaid for me to stay at home and do this thing. But the voice of this thing calling me to do it, having been a quiet grumble with little bits thrown in and I just add a bit and add a bit, is now just getting so loud that it's in the background all the time saying, come on, you have to do this. So, um I think I have to to honour those things, finish those things, and then maybe. (laughs) Maybe I will. Yes, definitely.
0: Right. It's about half past 1485. I'm heading for a little tavern on Fleet Street called The Kingmaker to do a little detective work. Someone once told me it can be a useful place to find out all sorts of stuff. You can't miss it. Just head for St Paul's Cathedral. Uh, The old Norman one, not the one with the dome. That's not there yet. I'll meet you there in three hours' time. And don't be late. Greetings, Earl Rivers. I greet you in the name of the new king. And greetings to you, Lords Gloucester and Buckingham. Well, what can I say? This is a most lovely surprise.
3: Good evening, sir. I am Susan, and I will be your serving wench for this evening. Would you like to sit in carousing or non carousing? Ha <laughs>
0: <laughs> ha! Less of the Mr. Clary, Doctor. They'll start to think me a gentleman. Don't stand on ceremony, doctor. Folks call me one arm Clary, don't they, boys?
3: Um, Perry? Is it a custom of this age for a man to place a hand on your bottom as a form of greeting? Not really, no. Ah. Ah! Aramem! Did you just break that guy's arm? Yes.
4: For your information, sir, this is my travelling
0: machine. My magic cabinet that takes me to places beyond your imagination. So you're a demon, are you? Uh, That depends. Do they burn individuals that show sign of devilry in this century? Yes? Well, in that case,
3: I am a wise and benevolent sorcerer. He's some kind of robot. His arms are soft. He seems real from this end. Oh my god, this bit's detachable! He's not real!
0: Are you sure you all right? We're
3: fine. We're fine! We've got to get out of here. There's something nasty and alien happening here. We have to find the doctor!
0: Well, he did come out of this thing, sire, the like of which I have never seen before. And they do say that unusual portents crop up at the time of a coronation. Who says? Well, they do. The ones who do say. You know, they who do say. Well, as long as we're being specific. You think I'm capable of killing a couple of kids? Murdering them in cold blood? Snuffing out a couple of young lives before they'd even begun?
3: Do you know what this means, Perry? It means we're not going to change history. We are history. We're part of it. It's not possible. I think we have solved the mystery. It's us, Perry. It is we who kill the princes in the tower.
0: Sometimes, Aramem, your ability to point out the flaws in my otherwise perfect plans errs on the irritating. Doctor Who, you have transgressed your deadline. Your contract has been violated. Now that's just what
4: I thought you would say.
2: Now, after you've been at the for a few years, this writer called Nev no Fountain writes this piece for you called The Keymaker. Um, yes. Now were you were you never a couple then? I don't know how long you were never been together for.
3: I don't think we were. No, no, I wasn't. I don't we definitely weren't, no. So how did how, no. so
2: how did you two meet? Was it through this work or later on?
3: No, we met through an actor. Um I mean, I suppose we probably would have met around that time, but we actually Met, well, by Met, I mean, he gave me a very cursory glance. Um,
2: I find that uh, hard to believe.
3: (laughs) No, really, honestly, it was, it was extraordinary. Um, He, uh, he was doing a sitcom with his writing partner, Tom Jameson. They did a sitcom, Elephants to Catch Eels. And the male lead was played by one of my closest friends. And he had rung me up and he said, Nicola, you would not believe this sitcom that I'm working on right now. And so, so he said, oh, it's a BBC sitcom. And um, said, it is so clever. I mean, they literally have to take some of the jokes out because there's just too many and it's too fast and it's too clever and it's intelligent and, and it's witty and it's bright and it's, oh, it's wonderful. It's the most enjoyable thing I've ever done. And I went, oh, okay. You know, And he said, you've got to listen to it. The first episode's out on the radio this week. So I was like, okay, I'll listen to it. So I listened to it. And I thought, yes, I've actually found myself laughing out loud, which so many times people tell you it's a funny comedy. It's a sitcom on the radio. And you listen and you've smiled, but you haven't laughed. You've smiled through it, but you haven't laughed out loud. Um, whereas with this show, I, I really did. So he rang him back up and he said, oh, this is brilliant. You know, you have to come and see this show. We're recording, you know, the next episode. And I wasn't very well at the time. I was a very ill uh, time of my life. And I said, I can't. I'm not well enough. I don't really want to come out. Um, And he said, you've got to. You've absolutely got to. I'm going to make you come. And so he made me come. And I was ill, pale. Uh, I could barely walk. I had two sticks. (laughs) And I went to this show. And then afterwards, he introduced me to Tom and Nev. And that was Tom and that was Nev. And that was it. thought, nothing more of them. And I had a writing partner of my own at the time, who then, we'd written a sitcom together. And from this sitcom we'd written, he'd got a job, a permanent job, moving to my family. So he got the job, I didn't get the job because I wasn't well enough to do the job. So, but based on the sitcom that we'd written, he got this job. And so then I wanted to do another bit of writing, um, but obviously because I wasn't well, I had to write only at certain times and stuff like this. So uh, I couldn't write with him anymore. And I had this really good idea for a sitcom. And so I thought, well, who do you know who's funny? I thought, oh yeah, those two blokes. What are their names? Um, yeah. Oh gosh. Where, how do I find them? I don't know. So I eventually got hold of Nev's email from um, my friend Jamie, and I just sent him an email and said, um, you know, I'm Nicola Bryant, and and we met very briefly, and I got a yeah, I know who you are thing back. You know, <laughs> I'm a very busy. Very busy man. And I met him at the BBC um, with my, you know, pitch in hand. And I thought he'd just take it and read my synopsis. And he he sat there and he said, oh, I'm busy. I'm doing this and I'm writing this and I'm doing this. And And I I thought, oh, he hasn't got time for me. He hasn't got time at all. So he said, right, what's your thing? What you got? And and so I handed it to him. And I thought he'd take it away and read it. And he didn't. He went, he started to read it there and then. Because it's like he didn't have time to go away and read it. And I thought, oh, this is so embarrassing. He's doing it in front of me. This is horrible. So he's just going to tell me what he thinks to my face right now. That's horrible. That's awful. I don't want that. But anyway, that's what he did. Um, and then he went, oh, this is rather good. I can see you uh, Thursday evening, 6 o'clock, one hour. Uh, Tuesday mornings, uh, 8 a.m., one hour. You know, I was like, "Yep, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> so I would go. And it was very much teacher pupil. I would go. I would take my next scenes. And he'd go, very funny. And he'd go, two ticks and a smiley. If it was A, funny, and B, was completely character-driven, and, and I lived like a little child for two ticks and a smiley, if it was just two ticks or just a smiley, I felt, oh, damn, I haven't really got it. And that was it. I would just take my homework in. And then he'd say, right, that was great. I love those three scenes. Now I want those three scenes in one. And I go, that's impossible. I can't do that. Do, go, You know, that was it. It was very bright. Barely looked at me. It was just nothing. There was no connection. It was just he was the teacher and and I was the pupil, And and that was it. And this sitcom got finished and I I gave it to people and lots of people made lots of lovely noises and, you know, big names said wonderful things, but it never happened. That is the business. Yep. And uh, then I remember Nev and I having a pub lunch or something and him saying, so what are you doing next? And I said, oh, I'm going to write this thriller. I said, it's about um, uh, pain, injury stuff. And this is the plot. And he went, oh, that's not, that's not, a, that's not a film. Because I wanted to write the film. He said, no, that's a play. And I went, no, it's a film. It's a play, it's a film, it's a play. So in the end, I agreed to write a play with him, which didn't work out because he realized there was like a fault in it. And then we dropped that. And then eventually that became Nev's novel, Painkiller. It was sort of long after we'd done all this working together that a friend of mine, I got a stinky, horrible, disgusting, and Nev's marriage had ended. And I had a really disgusting dribbly cold. And I was drinking garlic tea and I had this, my friends often used to call on New Year's Eve, we'd sort of catch up and they'd always, you know, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've got a friend coming round with the Chinese takeaway. And so many of my friends went, but he must, he must be in love with you because why would you spend New Year's Eve with a snotty woman who drinks garlic tea? You know, and I went, no, oh you're yeah, horrible. Ugh, what a terrible thought. Oh, no, we're friends. We're really good friends. We like each other, you know. But I realised when he walked in the door with the takeaway. Oh, I can see there's something there. So he had a very snotty, garlicky, disgusting first kiss. Poor man. (laughs) Did he get sick? (laughs) No, he didn't. He didn't.
2: Good immune system there. I got better,
3: <laughs> but no, we'd known each other for ages, um, and and in a way that was kind of nice. We never dated. We'd been <laughs> friends for a long time. We'd kind of like you know, I'd I'd watched his his marriage fall apart. I'd offered him my flat. I was on tour, so I said, "Oh, you can have my flat to see your kids," and and we just got closer and closer, and and it was together. It was lovely, yeah. <laughs> How lovely. We never went on a date, and we're like, "Well, so what are you interested in? What did you?" We, ne- we never had any of that talking about ourselves stuff. We just suddenly were.
2: That <laughs> never is an amazing writer Who manages to capture uh, your voice really well? I guess, I guess he should now, having been, been, been together together. Um, in terms of companion chronicles, there's you know, if anyone asks for the the, the top five produced. Um, Perry in the Pisco paradox is usually top of nearly everyone's list in terms of one of the best ever written and it, it it does it for several reasons because it's a great story. it's funny as but it also has so much emotion and heart to it, which is something that yeah. they managed to do. Um, he, he's a writer who manages to capture everything in in, in an hour story um yeah. do you, what, do you, what's your memories of doing do, do you remember doing that because it's a pretty hard I mean Colin is in half of it but not very much. It's really you carrying the whole show.
3: No, I, I remember I remember reading it when he gave it to me and I wanted to punch him. Because <laughs> it was like, oh, this is going to be so tough. Really tough to do. You know, you've got to just bear yourself to do it. And um, But I also knew it was brilliant. So I was really grateful for the opportunity to have that kind of Range um, in doing the show, and so I was really, you know, looking forward to doing it. But knowing, you know, I also wanted um, to have someone sensitive to work with. So I was lucky; I got John Ainsworth, who's lovely as a director, to to do that um, with me. And you know, blessed in a way that I got a Companions Chronicle where I get the Doctor to be my guest star. Um, because I am also having to be the other doctor myself. Um, but yes, and, and Colin was so funny in it too. He was hilarious, really
2: but sing fiddle.
3: <laughs> yes, it, but it was, it was wonderful. It was so, and it is that thing, isn't it? The journey as an audience member, it's that thing where with good horrors, they make you laugh before they suddenly make you jump. There's that thing where he makes you laugh before he
2: it sticks
3: an up. Yeah. And uh, and so the emotional roller coaster feels so much bigger um, than if you just stay on that level and then there's the sadness. It's the fact that he, he enables to make it so funny and yet never detracts from the journey or the characters. It's not gags for being funny, it's always true to the journey and true to the characters. Um, It's always serving the story and serving the people, which is quite an art, I have to say.
1: Speaking of emotional roller coasters, there was one story that sticks out in my mind, and that's, um, I think that's called The Reaping, which is uh, Claudia Christian Mm. plays your mother. Um, Yes.
3: (laughs) I wasn't pleased when I rang and said, do you want to be my mother? What?
1: Yeah, she's about the same age, isn't she? (laughs) So. uh,
3: Yeah, I think she's younger than me. Yes, we're by a year or
1: so. But yeah. So I guess that must be that must be interesting for you playing against American actors. I mean, you had that in your in your first story on television anyway, but do you feel self-conscious at all performing uh, Perry? No. In of-
3: what what's really hard is to do an English accent with American actors. Right. Because my ear immediately tunes to the American and my brain goes, That's where you should be going. So I have to fight really hard to remain british if i'm listening to or talking to an american that's hard whereas if i'm acting with another american then i'm just very comfortable in that my ear is hearing that same sound coming back to me um
1: so that story was that story was a very uh, very emotional um, story in, in the end um what's it like having such a great backstory for for Perry you never Never got that on TV, but is that something you really enjoy with the character?
3: Oh yeah, thoroughly. I mean, you might you might know this story that I wrote my own backstory and gave it to John Nathan Turner. <laughs> oh, I, should, I don't know. I go how naive, how naive. Well, I had only just left drama school, but that's what we used to do with our with our characters that we played. So. I'd sat down and I thought about Perry and I, I, I sort of very humbly gave it to him. And I said, look, I've, I've written all this stuff and I just, you know, um, I, I don't know if it's any use or whether you want me to use any of it or anything, but I, I just did it anyway. So I handed him this great big document and he said, oh, thank you very much. And then he never said anything. So I was like, um, John, did you read? He said, oh yes, yes, marvelous. Whether he did or he didn't, I don't know. But he said, that's absolutely marvellous. And I said, well, do I, should should I use it? He said, yes, use it all. Use all of it. That's marvellous. So I sort of went there, you know, with my whole backstory. But the backstory never really existed other than I have a stepfather. I have a mother who's busy doing society things and is not that interested in me. And... That was it really, wasn't it? And I was due to go to college uh, to study botany. That's all we know. Um, So yes, uh, I always had this huge backstory in my mind. The 1984 Olympic Games will be opening.
0: Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Reaping.
4: With me here in the studio is Lieutenant Doyle of the Baltimore Police. Thank you. The vagrant charged with the brutal murder of father of two Anthony Chambers has escaped. He's believed to still be in the Fells Point neighborhood and is on the run with an accomplice known only as The Doctor. Drive me to the police station. Fells Point. Price the around! Drink the coffee, Time Lord.
3: Doctor, we've got to go back to the TARDIS. Oh, do we indeed? Someone's been murdered back home.
4: Can you hear the leader's voice? Hi, Nate. Kathy. Mom. So, you decided to show your face then? He says soon we will all be like him. I saw it. I saw it. Kill the Undertaker. You saw who killed Anthony Chambers? It's alien, isn't it? I say it was some kind of pod. From space? No, Janine, from Arkansas. We will all be the ultimate. The perfect. The Cybermen. You will be like us. The human race, the universe, it isn't meant to be logical. You are incorrect. I have studied time, and there are patterns. Patterns? Patterns throughout time. The order is hidden, but it does exist. I lived in England for a while, in London. My first husband owned a pub there. The white rabbit on the embankment. Uh, yes, yes, I know it. Now, Mr. Before he died, of course. And that must have been, uh, eight six, seven years ago. Yes, yes, yes. 8687.
0: Six, eight, 8687. Why do people keep saying that to me? She will be terminated. If you're watching this, then it means I'm gone. <laughs> A message from beyond the grave.
2: To
4: all our listeners, we ask that you be like us. Keep safe and stay inside with your loved ones. I'm Natalie Hamilton. And you're listening to channel VNTR. The news you can
0: trust.
2: So one of the great tragedies of um Colin's run on the TV coming early was one of the big things that would do was this character of softening him up. And there's a big difference in his relationship with you between the two seasons you're playing against Colin. Big Finish, of course, picked up that whole idea and the relationship you have with Colin on audio is friendly and jovial and lovely and there's a lot of care there. What was it like when you actually went back to do the Lost Stories and suddenly they resurrected this more antagonistic relationship?
3: I think, weirdly, we were both a tiny bit grumpy (laughs) in terms of, oh, do we have to do that again? (laughs) So I think... As we always tried to do, we played against it as much as possible while accepting that we were observing, oh gosh, look at the sexism of this. Oh gosh, look at the misogyny of that. Oh gosh, look at... Yes, well, it was the 80s. And and just looking at the the stories in the context of of how far we've come. Um, But fun in the sense that they were the lost stories and we never got to make these these um, shows, so it was great to be able to to do them, but strange to go back to that, um, to still sort of a little bit trapped in the the, the bickering and and less close. Um, so whenever possible, we were just like slightly tweaking things.
2: we, we um, had the Bill Shaban on the show a while ago, and we we talked about the Mission to Magnus remake, and I guess we were pretty horrified by how sexist it was and how and it, it's interesting in terms of I guess it it, it it's representative of the times, but yeah. it really hurt hearing it now. <laughs> and just going yes. back and just sort of seeing we've progressed so far in a couple of decades.
3: Yeah. I mean uh, the, the the jump is huge. It's literally the eighties don't feel like and I suppose the thing is they are 40, 40. It's four 40. decades ago now. Um they, they feel like it's not just that was a different century. It's not just that was the 80s. It actually feels like a much bigger time gap, doesn't it? I mean, for, for most of us, it feels like the behavior that was perfectly acceptable in the 80s is so unacceptable now. And, and any of that does stand out so clearly in a script. But even when you're, if you're portraying that era You can't portray it exactly as it was without there being another character present to basically say, this is so wrong. Yeah. You know, that's the way we frame it now. If we do something that's set in the eighties, we show all of it, but there has to be someone there who feels this is really wrong. Whereas when we were there, you just have, suck it up. This is the way life is, you know? And there was no sense of, oh, woe is me, this is so wrong. You just, you're just just like, well, this is life. I'm a woman, They're a man, this is how it works. Yep. Um, so, yes, I think the, the scripts were a bit, and both Colin and I were a bit, oh. So it was a double-edged sword, really. We were very excited to have the lost stories and to be able to redo them. But visiting that, that 80s era was, um, was strange. I had a chat with Katie Manning actually about because she was saying in a weird way the 60s were better because a lot of the men were trying to be gentlemen they were busy being the gentlemen so yes there was still all this you know the women are less bright and there's all there's all of that going on but in a way if you take that as misogyny and not sexism there was more there was more sexism in the the dressing and the, the how they have to, we don't want them to be too clever, etc. But there was less off script and offset. There was less trouble, she felt. There was less issues to deal with in the 60s than there was in the 80s. I suppose a lot of things came to a head in the 80s. Um, but it's interesting because she said she felt always quite protected mostly by the men who were around her um on set and everything so you know that it is fascinating to look back at these different eras and 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 they are so wonderfully laid out for us in these scripts of this same show through all these different periods of time
1: mm. i i was looking at that uh, interview but that Matthew Sweet did with you uh, just before we came on this evening. And um, you were talking a lot about the attitudes of the 80s during that. You got very in-depth, actually, you guys. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it was it. it almost seemed to me like therapeutic for you. Is it, is it good to go back and remember those things and good to talk about it, or is it painful?
3: Um, I don't know. I, I don't really think about it a lot because it is the past and, and I don't want to spend my life there. And I didn't really expect my conversation with Matthew to go in that direction. It just did. And I think the thing was that I felt I don't have to lie. I don't have to cover for anyone. I don't have to brush this off and keep secrets and not tell people the truth anymore because who am I protecting? What what is the point of that? No, just, you know, I can answer that question honestly, and I can say, "Well, this is how it was," and then that's that. Um, uh, I don't know if it is cathartic. <laughs> I don't think so particularly. Um, for me, it's kind of all dealt with, um, and uh, but I just didn't. Wa- I didn't want to be on the interview. Brushing something under the carpet that I'd brushed under for many years that I didn't need to anymore. So I just thought, oh, I can just be straight and, and say, um, you know, these are some of the disappointing aspects of the 80s and these are some of the wonderful aspects of the 80s. Um, and I think because the fans know so much about the show and about us, that it would be disrespectful not to just be as honest as you can be in those situations. So, um, And because I'm so used to all the information, because it's mine and I know it and I know what happened, I really didn't expect there to be such a big whoo over it all. I just thought I'd done an interview and I thought it might be a bit dull. (laughs) And then then there's been quite a a big uh, response to it. Um, you know, and 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 generally speaking, everyone being very positive and supportive, which has been lovely. Um, but uh, there were other things that I had sat down and planned to talk about that I never got to talk about, because it's just that's the way the journey goes. And, and Matthew is a very good interviewer, and he he sort of, it's like he remains open to any path. And he, I think he suddenly felt, wow, we can actually take this over here. And, and we did. Yeah. Um, and I thought he was very insightful of his interpretation of things, too.
1: Absolutely. And it was anything but dull, I can assure you. Of that. <laughs> um, Philip, that Philip, he does, Philip doesn't have a Blu ray player. So I was I was watching this, texting him uh, while I was watching it, going, wow, this interview's <laughs> uh, amazing. But um, one well, day I'll, I'll say, show it to I you, Philip. I don't care. I don't
3: care. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine if you don't have a Blu-ray player, you know. Thank you.
2: I, I don't, do not feel like I need to buy an entire sort of Doctor Who on another medium again.
3: <laughs> I understand that. I think that's why they are incredibly generous, the BBC, with the amount that they put on these things, because otherwise, yes, why would you buy it in another form? You've already got it. So it really has to be that the extras are that added value. Otherwise, I, I don't imagine the number of people buying it would be very many at all.
2: Yeah, well, I, I am suffering from FOMO. I will admit that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, do you guys live near to each other at all?
2: No, nowhere near.
3: Nowhere near. Okay. I nice, can't I'm, pop I'm, out and look at you, Ray.
2: <laughs> we, We've actually not met in person. Well, <gasps> ah. we, before we started doing this, we sort of had been in the same space for some doctor conventions, but. We don't think we'd actually particularly had a conversation, and we didn't know each other till we started doing this two and a half years ago.
3: Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Because of course, <laughs> there's always that assumption, isn't it? It's like, oh, you know, when Americans say, "I have friends in England," do you know?
2: <laughs> yes. So, what, what what work are you? I mean, you've got projects you're working on. I mean, how hard is it to find work at the moment with pandemic and life?
3: Oh, uh, it's difficult. I actually, I have I have an agent. My previous agent had decided to retire just at the point when I was nursing my mum through cancer. So that was really tricky. I couldn't take the time out to go and find someone else. So I was several years without an agent, and I just got a new agent during the pandemic. And I just met her uh, last week, and she's very optimistic. However, she said it's it's one of the worst times in the industry. Um, You know, we do have Hollywood A-listers doing commercials, which used to be the bread and butter um, for actors in between things. um, And we're no longer paid the same money we used to be for doing commercials. And it's all that that filter down. So the big television stars are doing little roles. I just watched um, an award-winning actress play a non-speaking, non-credited role in a BBC TV series. And I was like, I was waiting for the scene where she, oh, she's in it. And I was waiting for her to have a big scene and she never had one, that was it. She just sat on the sofa being this other actress's mum. That was it. And I thought, wow, she's not even credited. It's just, I, I do know her. And so she's not credited. It's not even on her IMDb. I assume she was paid for it. (laughs) I assume she needed the money. Um, But if that's the place we're at, award-winning actors taking no credit, non-speaking roles, it's very, very tricky. And because people haven't worked for a couple of years, that means that you can get anyone you want for this part. So this part that would normally have gotten um a b-list actor can have an a-list actor because everybody's looking to do more work and they're saying oh yeah i'll do telly i'll do this i'll do that i'll do so um it's it's tricky um and there aren't many parts for sort of women in their 50s and 60s unless it says old woman and then i'm supposed to be walking with a stick and a white bun and a stoop (laughs) yeah and uh and in a way, I hope it'll just get better and better for me because I've always said I'm a character actor trapped inside a leading lady's body. And so I'm hoping those character roles will just grow and grow as I get older. Um, so I look forward to that. But it's, it's you know, it is a difficult time. Um, but I'm, I'm optimistic and there's so many things I want to do. Um, but they are writing, and I know I always am the second writer in the house. So that means I'm always like, oh, Nev's doing this today, so I'm planning his food, and his <laughs> needs. He needs the iPad for that meeting. I'm going to be here, and we're going to do that. And, and then I realised I spent my whole day taking care of him and the dogs, my mum, and I go, what happened to your writing, Nicola? I'm very bad at just, you know... Ignoring the kids and ignoring everybody and saying, "Right, this is my writing time." So, so well, you didn't I'm, set
1: up for home recording,
3: uh, for big. I finish do. Jury. I've got a studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a studio at home. Um, I was one of those who was going in as much as I could because I do like that interaction with the you know when you're recording in the home recording studio, it's it's fine if you're doing a book. But when you're doing a drama, it's just so much nicer to be with the other actors because um, you get that relationship thing happening. Um, so I would sometimes be the only person in the studio, so it'd just be me and the engineer, and everyone else would be doing it. And people say, "Do you want to do that two-hour drive?" And you know, and I go, "Well, yeah, if if it's okay with everybody else, because." I'd rather give 100% of my thoughts to the acting instead of just even between one and 5% going, have I got that on the right level? Oh yeah, my voice went too high on that. I'd rather just be the actor rather than the actor and the engineer. But, uh, but a wonderful thing to have when we were all stuck and that was the best way. And, and great for, for lots of actors who live very remotely, being able to sort of phone their performances in. Um, so it has its place, but I don't think it belongs for every drama. And for me, it certainly doesn't belong for interviews. I want to meet the director. I want to
4: yeah. meet
3: the people you might be working with. I don't think you get the right flavour from just recording your scene on a phone and mailing it in.
2: <laughs> a, a number of actors we've spoken to have talked about the fact that yeah, they can't stand the fact it's just record and send. And they never hear you yeah. back. There's only the respect to actually talk to you back yeah. and give you any feedback. Um, I, I mean, we were talking to Colin recently, and Colin was talking about the fact that he actually is enjoying being able to work from home.
3: I um, know, he loves
2: Which is interesting. I mean, to me, he seems so social that he loves people so much that that is, a, that is the cost he's losing. But then there's the yeah. comfort of working from home.
3: Exactly. And I think. You know, I can understand that, especially when it's cold and the weather's rubbish. Um, And there's the traffic and the queuing and, you know, with age, we sort of become more and more like staying at home. But I would rather go. I would rather sit in the rush hour traffic and, and deal with that and be in the studio than do it from home.
1: I think Colin likes to be in his jimmy jams all day.
3: I think he does. I think he doesn't get dressed. I think he just throws <laughs> something on top and he's still in his pyjamas and he's still got his like bunny rabbit slippers on. And I think we will expose him someday.
2: <laughs> <laughs> do you listen or watch any of your stories or you're not, are you a person that likes to or not?
3: Um, I do. I mean, lots have come recently that I haven't listened to, but, um, I, I do like to listen to them and I've usually forgotten all of them, which is what's so great. So the whole story is a surprise. You'll suddenly remember, oh, I remember that line, but I don't remember how it ends. And, and you can thoroughly enjoy everybody else. And, and it's a great way of, you know, traveling from A to B, putting a story in. I love them for, for car journeys and, and stuff like that. Um, but I always forget, I always forget. What happened, and I forget. Because it usually is a, often a very long time between. And especially if you've done another story in between that one, then you remember the last one, and you don't remember that one. And it's, it's great because your, your memory's just gone and you just, you get to enjoy um, you enjoy them fresh like everybody else does.
2: Are there particularly authors that you like, you know, like they're writing, particularly for your character, aside from Niv? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was going to say, Aside- not including you.
3: <laughs> oh, and um, well, lots of writers over the time. Um, I, as you mentioned, The Reaping earlier, um, I'd love to do more with Joe. Um, and uh, I've worked with Johnny uh, and James, if I want to, not a Doctor Who audio, but um, I just, and Jack's, of course, is wonderful, Jack Rayner. Um, I do enjoy the fact that um, there are some people who turn up who really know your character and that's lovely and then you find somebody new like Chris Chapman's turned out to be Mm. a sort of great uh, writer for for Perry and and the Sixth Doctor and uh, it's lovely when somebody new turns up and you go oh this is and they're so enthusiastic and they bring all that new energy and um i think generally generally speaking big finish just go out and they find great writers and that's wonderful
2: mm. well we're still looking forward to what is in store for perry in the future
3: oh thank you so much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you nicholas so much for your time
3: oh thank you guys uh have a wonderful time i look forward to hearing it <laughs>
0: You are Dr. John Smith and Miss Pepper Gilliam Brown? That's us? We are Dr. Freud 324 and Dr. Freud 326. We will be your therapist for your allotted hour.
3: What?
1: From Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who,
0: the Sixth Doctor and Perry, Volume 1.
3: We don't have a lot in common.
4: So what do you do together for recreation?
3: We do like exploring. It's quite the coincidence that you two should be looking for a lost tribe in the jungles of the Congo. Yeah. Funny, that. Mm.
4: So you would describe your relationship as healthy? Yes. It's our experiences that have drawn us together, made us like a well-oiled team. What did I tell you about how dangerous it was for us to disrupt our own timelines?
3: I forgot! It's fine for you to do it, showing off, making yourself the center of attention. Because what? (laughs) You're the doctor. You know best. Perry,
4: do you believe that putting yourself in danger is a way to sustain your relationship? No. Come on, Perry, come on. Almost there now. Getting Perry involved in what I do is my way of protecting her. Otherwise, she just gets bored and wanders off and ends up in even more trouble.
0: You can't just leave
4: me here to die. Oh, but I'm not going to. You need to take responsibility for your own situation. Doctor! Oh, don't make this any harder than it already is, Perry. But I'm going to die! Yes, uh, I'm very sorry about that. Doctor, you can't! Big Finish
1: we love stories i'm home well that was an extraordinary chat we had there with nicola thanks so much for organizing it philip
2: no that's okay it was a real joy to do and i can't believe how long we were able to talk yeah and and there's going to be a version that we can't release till after she's died she's told us okay
1: We'll make sure we organise that. <laughs> we
2: half an hour of material at least to, to release later on. <laughs> but yeah. This, yeah, don't think that will ever happen because she's, you yeah, well, she's going to be around for a long time,
1: yes. And as I said at the outset, Season 22 in particular was a very uh, special uh, season for me personally as a Doctor Who fan, so it was thrilling to be able to, to chat with Nicola about that. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's all I can say. It was great.
2: Yeah, hope we hope everyone's enjoyed it as much as we have.
1: Okay, so it's time for our recommendations now. Whose turn is it to go first? Philip? I think Nicola
2: said it was my turn.
1: Did she? <laughs> yeah, she did. I didn't catch that in the recording, <laughs> but I believe her.
2: Uh, so anyhow, um, no surprise, I'm going to recommend a Nicola Bryant story. Um, and I and I I think I've actually recommended this before. Certainly when we did our yearly takes of the best stories, I this was one of them. Um, it's, so it's Doctor Who, the 6th Doctor and Perry, Volume 1, um, which at the time I thought, fantastic, because if we can have several volumes as good as this, it's going to be the best thing in the world. Um, and we later found out that this was done, especially for the 20th anniversary of Big Finish. Hmm. But it came out late. A bit <laughs> delayed. Bit it delayed. Was, it was delayed. Um, but anyhow, four fantastic stories. Um, one of my favourites by Nev Fountain, so her partner, um, conflict Theory, which is all about Sigmund Freud. It is so funny, like so funny. But there's also a great one that explores the whole like mentality where you like posts and things and you've got to get likes. That's, that's the currency on this planet. Um, that's by Jackie Rayner, who she mentions one of her favourite um, authors as well. Um, there's also two others. Um, yeah, this these four stories all hour long, all have different elements but Nicola is just fantastic. Colin is fantastic. Um, the two of them just sing. And so, if you haven't yet listened and got this, get it because it's it's worth every cent, or every pence, or <laughs> no, no, cents is America too. I don't know what they use in Germany or what. <laughs> euro. A euro. Oh, um, There must be something smaller than euros, though, isn't your Euro the big amount? do so, have cents. Anyhow, our European listeners, let us know what you use. Um, Anyhow, recommenders. What about you, Dwayne? What are you going to recommend?
1: I'm going to recommend something that features Perry and Nicola Bryant uh, performing as well. And you know, Philip, I enjoy my short trips. I do. And so I'm going to pick one. There was one that stood out to me. I was looking through my list and looking for ones that Nicola was narrating, of course. But this one was written by Dan Starkey, released in 2018, called The Authentic Experience. So it's about uh, a race of people who have experimented with time travel and turned it into a bit of a, a tourist attraction. It's kind of along the same lines. It it made me think of Carnival of Monsters, but with a with a different twist. But it was also Dan Starkey's name. When I saw his name, I have a real thing for his writing at the moment. He's a very quirky writer. Mm. Uh, I love the way he uh, he writes. So uh, that combined with Nicola. Uh, and Nicola's great with her narration and and voices. She does all the all the character work really well. It's really thoroughly enjoyable to listen to. So that's my pick, the authentic experience. A short trip, very very cheap to buy. What are the short trips going for? About three three dollars, three pounds. Three
2: pounds. I think I think they're two pound ninety nine at the moment.
1: Yeah. So uh, definitely grab hold of that one. Uh, and that's my recommendation.
0: There you go.
2: It's a good one.
1: All right. Coming soon
0: from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who Short Trips, The Authentic Experience.
3: Perry's heels clanked along the gunmetal balcony on which the TARDIS had materialised, and she stopped to look down at the concourse of the spaceport below. Hordes of commuters swarmed from one transmat station to the other, some breaking away from the crowd and dashing in neurotic shoals, others trudging with a more unenthused fatalistic air. Vast and bustling, it reminded her of being back in New York, of Grand Central Station at rush hour, but with significantly less grandeur. The overall tone of the place was grey. Grey suits and grey faces, grey directions in grey writing on grey signs, all illuminated by a filtered light that managed to be grey in its partiality. In their bright colours, she and the Doctor seemed rather overdressed. But of course, that was nothing new for the Doctor. This doesn't look like a very happy place, Doctor, she observed. Functional, I agree. This planet's a business and trading hub for this part of the galaxy, sometime rather far in your race's future. Most actual commerce and finance is managed by computers in this period. Then... Where are all these guys going in such a rush? Oh, your species does still like to seal the deal face to face when they can, despite telecommunications, or face to prehensile eye stalk, depending on the clientele.
1: Big finish. We love
3: stories.
1: That is us for this instalment of The Sirens of Audio. It has been a pleasure to be with you and uh, to have your company, Philip.
2: And be the pleasure to be with you as well. And Nicola, the three of us, of have course.
1: Something yes and uh so thank you all for uh coming along on the ride with us for this episode um do drop a like comment subscribe all those kind of things contact us via our socials if you if you want to uh, get in touch leave us a comment Uh, and we will catch you all next time see you this has been the sirens of audio episode 128 two ticks and a smiley face with our guests Nicola Bryant and your hosts Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Original theme music composed by Joe Kramer. Our website is sirensofaudio.com You can email us at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or contact us via any one of our socials. Thanks for listening audiophiles. We'll hear you next time.